Well, we have uh, we we are done with Genesis. In case you uh, you weren't aware, we were not intending to do the whole book of Genesis. Just chapters 4 through 11 at a later time we'll come back and do a next section in the book of Genesis but uh, for now we're in between sermon series and at times we are in between sermon series I get the opportunity to just uh, pick uh, preach on something that has been on my mind and heart and that's today then that brings us to John chapter 6 verses 60 through 71 let me encourage you then, if you, if you have a Bible with you, open that up and turn to John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 6, verse 60 through 71. And let's prepare ourselves for the reading of God's Word. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to, the, to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed Jesus. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Uh, there's three things I think we see in this passage. First, uh, uh, those three things are this. First, the reality of falling away from Jesus. The emptiness of other paths apart from Jesus. And the sure foundation of Jesus and Jesus' words. First, we see the reality of falling away. And in this chapter of John's Gospel, we read that at this time in Jesus' ministry, in light of Jesus' teaching that we haven't read, but particularly the teaching which has just occurred in, in, the, in the earlier parts of chapter 6, in light of that, many of Jesus' disciples turn back and no longer follow him. They no longer believe in him. They no longer follow him as his disciples. And so this chapter then is uh, in some part about the, the sad reality of turning away from Jesus, falling away from Jesus, departing from Jesus, and leaving behind the faith. And... Uh, yeah, I think this is something we hear about in our time and place a lot. Uh, maybe in other parts of the world, we hear about people coming to Christ in great numbers, but it seems like in our day and in our time and place, uh, 
What we hear often is people turning away from Christ. The storyline is maybe familiar. Doubts, which lead to uh, the popular modern term, deconversion. When those who once followed Jesus stop following him, when those who once called themselves Christians stop calling themselves that, when those who once believed the gospel no longer do so, and we see some type of this phenomenon happening in John chapter 6. And perhaps uh, this is uh, something you uh, are familiar with. Perhaps this maybe is a very personal issue where either you yourself or someone you love has fallen away or seems right on the brink. And there can be various reasons for this, right? Either the truths of Jesus become something that someone feels they can't believe to be true, or the truths of Jesus um, become something that someone doesn't want to believe to be true, Or the truths of Jesus become something that someone simply doesn't care if they're true. Or some combination of all of the above. And, uh, you know, maybe someone can't believe it to be true. Maybe what that looks like is that the truths of Christianity have, uh, maybe once they were fashionable and popular, now they have moved out of fashion and become unpopular, uh, culturally repugnant, intellectually difficult, or personally offensive. Uh, there seem to be too many unanswered questions or not enough certainty, and uh, maybe uh, there has uh, grown and taken hold in somebody uh, disillusionment from the many failings that we see in the church around us, or simply the, a diet of gorging on the world's empty values and deceitful falsehoods can't believe it to be true. Sometimes it looks like uh, someone coming to the point where they don't want it to be true. And uh, what that might look like is that the cost of following Jesus, which Jesus promises all who follow him at the very outset, so there's no surprises, even though it still ends up surprising us, that there is a cost, a personal cost of self-denial and self-sacrifice that comes with following him. Jesus, and, and maybe what happens is Jesus' call, uh, the cost of following him becomes too costly. Where we start to see and feel what it really means and what it really costs me. It becomes too personally confrontational and challenging to my own desires or the deceitfulness of sin tempts us and ensnares us where we, sit, we get to that crossroads in life in which following Jesus means walking one path while living for self or pleasure or this world's empty promises goes in a different path. Don't want it to be true. Or someone comes to the point where they simply don't care if it's true. Apathy, lukewarmness, or short-sighted worldliness. Uh, the pursuit of the pleasure or worries and cares of this life that crowd out or drown out or blind our minds and souls to eternal concerns and realities. And so either in that apathy we turn away or simply slowly drift away 
And you can see, as I said, how all these things can work together and feed off of each other to attack our faith and fill our minds and hearts with doubts. Doubts which can find an inroad into our souls through sin or unbelief or doubts which can really just sort of uh, appear out of nowhere and take us by surprise and catch us off guard. And so I just want to take a minute to say uh, that um, doubts are a common experience for believers in Jesus. Doubts are a common experience for believers in Jesus. And um, I'm, I'm very thankful that I was raised uh, going to church regularly. And uh, I, I think as a, a, a fruit of that is that as early as I can really remember, I just always believed and that God existed. Nothing uh, was seemed uh, more plausible than that. And uh, later in life, then embraced the truth of His Word and the Christian faith, the gospel message, and it it just was something that I always believed. And nothing seemed more plausible than that. Nothing was more implausible than the thought that God didn't exist. That he wasn't the source of all that is and that his word wasn't true or that Jesus wasn't the son of God and the savior of the world. And, uh, um, and, and, and then uh, a time in life where I remember seemingly out of nowhere that that just sort of changed all of a sudden and doubts crept in. And uh, that is a very difficult experience. Uh, but doubts are a common experience for believers. And in some sense, uh, you know, maybe that's to be expected. Um, I mean, let me give a few reasons why we should maybe expect that. Um, first, what we believe is in some sense kind of hard to believe, right? Uh, what we believe is in some sense kind of hard to believe. We believe that God was born as a baby, and that baby was fully God and fully human, who made outrageous claims for himself, the claim to be equal to God, who claimed to uh, live a morally perfect life, who claimed to bear the sins of the world on the cross, and who we believe rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, where he now reigns with ultimate and absolute authority over all, and will come again to judge all people and bring about his holy judgment, resulting in eternal condemnation or eternal salvation for all. These are not things that sort of mere human wisdom leads us to believe and profess. These are divinely revealed. And these are things that are not culturally popular and easily accepted. They are offensive and ridiculed. And now I believe there's good reasons to believe all those things, but let's not forget just that some of those things are kind of hard to believe. And let's not forget also how outrageous many of Jesus' claims were in his own day. And how challenging they are in some way in every time and place and culture. And that the call of Jesus is confrontational and challenging and costly. And because of that, it can be very convenient to find an excuse to dismiss it. 
And we see here that Jesus claims, you know, we don't have time to look at the whole chapter, but what Jesus has been teaching and claiming about himself in chapter 6 did not fit into the accepted worldview and accepted truths and common expectations of those who were, had been his followers. And on, at verse 60, we see their, uh, their, uh, ridicule and offense at what Jesus has been teaching. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And when they say this is a hard teaching, uh, it, it, it probably doesn't mean so much hard to understand as hard to accept. So there are things about the Christian faith certainly that are hard to understand, but more often than not, the issue that we encounter that is challenging about the Christian faith is that there are truths about it that are hard to accept. And Jesus is aware of that. And Jesus, being aware of their attitude of grumbling and dismissiveness and offense at him and his teaching, asks them, what, does this offend you? You know, he's aware of the offense-producing material of his truth. And he doesn't dial it back or water it down or pander to the crowd. <laughs> but he, in fact, later he turns to the 12 who so far have hung around. He says, are you guys leaving too? Uh, verse 67 and the question there, is it asked in such a way that it expects a negative answer? The grammar of it expects a negative answer. No, they're not going to leave. But the reason for Jesus' confidence that they're not going to leave is not in them, but in him and his grace. Verse 70, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Uh, and this leads to the next reason that we should doubt our common uh, uh, what we believe can be hard to believe. Uh, second, we are weak and sinful. And Jesus affirms here that faith requires a supernatural work of God's grace. In verse 65, he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Faith and conversion, coming to, to Jesus in faith, and it always requires a supernatural work of God's grace. That we cannot, we will not come to faith in Christ without uh, the grace of God opening up our eyes and our hearts to his truth, giving us new life to come to faith and giving us the strength to persevere in that faith. Without the grace of God, Jesus says we can't, and won't come to him. But when that grace comes into our lives, we can and will come to him. And without that, apart from that, the reason for that is that before the grace of God comes into our life, we're dead in our sins. We are blind and hardened and lost in our unbelief and darkness. We are deceived by the lies of Satan. The, the picture to say, to, to, to say the least, is not very optimistic of the human potential to turn to God and find him in true faith. It doesn't leave us with even a tiny crack of uh, opportunity to put hope in our ability or willingness to seek and find God without divine intervention in our hearts. Coming to true faith in Christ always requires 
a true, uh, a work of God's grace. <clears throat> uh, what we believe is, can be hard to believe. We are weak and sinful. And uh, God doesn't always give us answers to every question that we might have. And, I, you know, I've said it before, that if you believe in a God whom you can understand perfectly everything about, you should be suspicious of that God. Suspicious that that God isn't simply a human invention. Because if God truly is God, the creator of uh, all things, transcendent and holy above all things, whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts, then we ought to expect and embrace the fact that there will be many things about him that we cannot fully grasp and comprehend, right? What else should we expect if God is God? If God is a real, true, living God, not an imagination, uh, an, an invention of human imagination. And so, while God, I, you know, doesn't call us to have a blind, uninformed faith, we do have an informed faith with reasons to support that faith. We have to embrace the reality that we may have questions that will not be answered to our full and perfect satisfaction and certainty this side of glory. And so, doubts are an experience of the Christian life. And sometimes, what we see here is those doubts about Jesus' truth and person can have the, the worst, most destructive effect by causing people to turn away from him. And that's what we see in chapter 6, summed up, very nicely in verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is the sad reality of falling away from Jesus. And I just want to take a minute to talk about a little bit of theology related to this, that the Bible teaches two things that seem contradictory. First, that uh, we can fall away from faith and second, that we cannot lose our salvation. Falling away is a human, a, a reality of our human experience and a phenomenon of our human perspective in that we can follow Jesus for a time, profess faith in him for a time, but not persevere in him and fall away. And the Bible is full of warnings against, warnings to God's people against falling away, to staying on guard against falling away. Here in John chapter 6, we are warned of that. Jesus' parable of the four soils, the whole book of Hebrews is full of those. Many other examples that warn us against falling away and admonish us to persevere in faith in Christ, which means that God places all the responsibility uh, and accountability upon us for believing in Jesus. That we're personally accountable to him if we don't. But at the same time, the Bible promises us that we cannot lose our salvation because even though God gives us the responsibility of believing in Christ, it doesn't call us to do that in our own strength. 
And our salvation is a divine and eternal reality. It's the truth of things from God's perspective. And that once the God's uh, gift of new life has been planted in us truly and really, what in this world can snuff it out? Nothing. Nothing. But it will live forever. Just as we talked about, just as Jesus says that he enables us to come to the Father, so he holds out to us uh, holds on to us for all eternity when we do. And as he promises, for all those who come to him, he will raise up at the last day. He promises that all the Father gives to him will come to him, that he will not drive them away. He promises that all his sheep who hear his voice, he gives eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of his hand and no one can snatch them out of his father's hand, his father who is greater than all. These are absolute and certain and eternal promises and maybe in times of doubt or struggle, especially you have felt the powerful hand of your heavenly father holding on to you, his child. So much so, these promises are so certain that we, when, when, that if we do have true saving faith, then we can't lose that. And any falling away we may experience will neither be a total falling away or a final falling away. And if someone does fall away totally or finally, it means that they never had true saving faith to begin with. And so the question is, well, how do we know? Well, the degree to which we can have assurance of that eternal reality in us is to some degree related to whether we are persevering in the faith right now. And so the question we ask ourselves is, am I persevering imperfectly with struggle, but nevertheless persevering, uh, and trying to answer my doubts, battling temptation, counting the cost, persevering and following after Jesus in faith, turning away from sin and obeying him. And if so, then we can have the assurance that Jesus has brought us to the Father and will never let us go. Reality of falling away. Second thing we see here is the emptiness of other paths. When Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them if they want to leave too, Peter, who, you know, often Peter is the spokesman for the group. Sometimes he speaks impulsively and regrettably, but not here, right? This is one of those moments in Peter's life where he, he gets it right. Uh, a better answer by a human being no one could give, I think, and certainly even he could not give it except by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. There's two parts of the answer, really, sort of a negative uh, and then a positive. And the first part of the answer is this. Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, uh, the first part of Peter's answer is, what other options do we have? Right? Who else is there? What alternative can we find in this life uh, 
besides you, Jesus. And Peter, see, is recognizing the emptiness of other paths, the emptiness of other options, other saviors, other worldviews that can uh, uh, sustain a life in this world and that are worthy of giving one's life to follow after and build a life upon, the emptiness of other paths. And when people talk about that idea that I mentioned earlier of deconversion, there's an important but often overlooked and underanalyzed uh, part of that question, and that is this. Before you jump ship of the Christian faith, maybe you've given a lot of uh, thought about what you're jumping from, maybe not, but before you jump, maybe you should also give some thought to what you're jumping into and whether it can catch you and sustain you and fill you. What else is there, is what Peter asks Jesus. As I acknowledge, as I mentioned before, Christianity can be hard to believe. Uh, even though I think there are good reasons to be a, some things about it can be hard to believe. It can leave us with questions that aren't answered to our fullest satisfaction or certainty. But it's a whole lot better, <laughs> a whole lot more livable, reasonable, satisfying than any other alternative we can find in this world. Just briefly, life without God is unexplainable. It's absurd. Our existence has no explanation, doesn't make any sense. Our lives don't and can't have any real meaning or purpose. And in the end, all there is is nothingness and meaninglessness. Life without God is unexplainable. Life without God is unlivable. It's impossible to actually live consistently with all the implications of all that we lose without God in the picture. It lacks the resources or the foundation to support the, the highest ideals and aspirations that w humanity seeks to have. It can't have those without God in the picture. We live as inescapably moral beings in an inescapably moral world. But if you remove God from the picture, there's no basis for any moral intuitions or convictions or aspirations. Everything goes, and we simply do not and cannot live like that is actually true. Life without God is unexplainable, it's unlivable, and it's unsatisfying, utterly unsatisfying. It's despair. Pleasure, whatever pleasure we might seek, is, it uh, turns out to be fleeting and unfulfilling. Purpose is nothing, empty, not a thing. Meaning can't be found. There's no reason for or source of joy. There was an atheist philosopher, just to sort of summarize some of uh, his summary of what an uh, uh, atheistic view of the world means. He says this, nothing can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. Everything that seems, br seems bright and beautiful about humanity is destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. 
and must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins in which all there is is unyielding despair. If there's nothing beyond the grave in our experience, and there's nothing but the grave, death, emptiness, meaninglessness, purposelessness. And our Christian faith might leave us with some unanswered questions, but there's no alternative that doesn't leave us with more. Christianity may be hard to believe, but there's no alternative that isn't harder to believe. There's nothing else that makes sense of the human experience and resonates with the human heart and has real reason to believe and is livable like Christianity does and is. And that leads us then to our third point, the, the reality of falling away, the emptiness of other paths, and the sure foundation of the person of Jesus and the words of Jesus. The sure foundation. The next part of Peter's answer is, so, so we looked at the negative part, and, and, you know, Peter, just to make sure he doesn't, and we don't, it, he's not just sort of saying, well, there's nothing else, so we just sort of believe by default here, I guess, you know. Uh, there's nothing else, but uh, we believe not only because there's nothing else, not only because Jesus is the best option there is, but because of who he is, that in him we have found the one who is the life, life to the full. And we have found the one who is the truth, truth that is a sure foundation for life. And we have found in him the one who is the way, the way that is how we best flourish in God's world. In him we found meaning and purpose and life and joy and peace we can't, we can't overstate all that we have and all that we found in you, Jesus. That's what Peter's saying here. Peter looks to the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus and the words of Jesus and confesses that these are a sure foundation to sustain our faith and for us to build our lives on. And this is where we think about, if we're thinking about jumping ship from the Christian faith, this is where we do give careful thought to what we're jumping from. Are we, and here's a, here's a good question to ask. We should ask it in humility, but we should ask it. If we're thinking about jumping from the Christian faith, are, we should ask if we're jumping from the true faith, the real person and words of Jesus. And then the, sort of in the metaphor of one author, are we jumping from the main floor and foundation of Christianity or are we jumping from some fringe attic or crawl space that's been built around us off the foundation? Does that make sense? Uh, uh, some fringe attic or crawl space that misunderstands and misrepresents the real thing and maybe takes secondary or tertiary things and makes them central and foundational and all the while taking that which is central and foundational and pushing it to the side or leaving it out altogether or simply missing the boat and being more informed by the values and ways of this world but than by the values and ways of our king. And let's make sure again in humility that that's not us. 
And this is one reason why I, I like that we uh, end each service professing our common faith using the his ancient and uh, historical uh, creeds of the church that remind us what is the central and foundational parts of our Christian faith that unite us all together in common? God is the creator of heaven and earth. That Jesus is the son of God who was born into history, suffered and died for our sins, rose again, ascended into heaven, and will come again. That the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is present with us, his people, enabling us to live for him as his church. Because there may be a lot of unanswered questions, there may be a lot of difficult doubts, but Jesus, or Peter's response here reminds us that Jesus is the answer to all of that. There's no one like Jesus, and there's no words like Jesus' words. There's no one like Jesus. Peter says, after he says, to whom shall we go? He says, you are the Holy One of God. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, he's not just another prophet. He is God in the flesh. The holy God in the flesh, a sinless, spotless, such that he is able to deal with the sins of the world because he had no sins of his own. Let's not underestimate the, the, the profound nature of what Peter says here. Uh, you know, to spend three years following, traveling, hiking around with someone, uh, and concluding that they are sinless. Uh, how amazing is that? To the, the people around Jesus who knew him best would conclude he was sinless, right? And how amazing is it that Jesus' first followers, who were deeply ingrained monotheists, worshipped one God who was so holy and transcendent that he couldn't be imaged in, made, imaged in visible form and to worship anything other than the one holy true God is, is blasphemy, but those same people would be so convinced by their experience of him that they would call him the holy one of God and bow down and worship him and give their lives for him right? Most people we spend significant time with, you know, we come to radically different conclusions and responses about them as they do to us, right? Uh, we don't want to worship them. We certainly don't think they're sinless. But Jesus' closest followers did. One, one writer sums it up this way, what kind of person lives a life that makes a claim to divinity seem remotely believable to those who, because of their convictions about God, would be most skeptical of those claims. Jesus did. You are the Holy One of God, not just another prophet, but God in the flesh. And they came to believe that this person rose from the dead, victorious over death, never to die again, and gave their life for that belief a belief that was witnessed, that can't be satisfyingly explained by hallucination or conspiracy theories that could have easily been disproven and discredited in its earliest times, but it wasn't, and it spread 
a belief that defies explanation as to how it could be so personally transformative in its effect and so cross-culturally expansive in its growth, except that it's true. It's true. There's no one like Jesus, the Holy One of God. And there's no words like the words of Jesus because his words are the very words of God. The next part of Peter's response Uh, You have the words of eternal life. There's no words like Jesus' words because they're the very words of God, the very truth of God. Jesus said earlier, verse 63, the Spirit gives life. And this is the predominant role of the Spirit in the Old Testament. In fact, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is told to speak God's words to a pile of bones. And when he does, and when God's Spirit comes, it stirs up those bones and brings them to life. And now Jesus says here in verse 63, my words are full of of the Spirit and life. He's claiming that his words are the very words of God that bring deadness to life, that bring us out of our death into life, that bring joy and peace to our hearts, that speak forgiveness to our guilty souls, that enlighten our paths and give us the path that is the right path in this world. And when we come to Jesus, when we come to Jesus' words, We find a person that defies alternative explanations other than what he claimed about himself is true. And we find deeds done by this person that defy alternative explanations other than they prove his claims to be true. And we find words of truth that make the most sense of life and of our human experience. We find salvation, hope for our hearts that is eternal, peace with God, all by the grace of God for sinners. We find the thing that our souls have always yearned for, which is what we ought to expect if we were made by God, for God, in the image of God. It's exactly what we ought to expect if we believe what the Bible teaches about us. Right? We, saw, we saw earlier, we see sort of a, a paradox here. We saw early in this chapter, and we see in our own experience, that Jesus' truth is offensive. It offends us. What else should we expect if it's truly from God? And we, as the Bible tells us, we are our sinful and rebellious creatures. What else ought we expect than that at least some of God's truth would be offensive to us and we would want to reject it? But our job isn't to put ourselves in God's place and weed out what we like and don't like, but to humbly receive it, recognizing that God's truth will not always at first be loved by sinful hearts, that God's grace is weaning off of their love of darkness, right? What else should we expect? But at the same time, we see in Peter's response that at the same time that God's truth is offensive and repulsive because we are sinful and rebellious, at the same time, God's truth is attractive and beautiful and draws us to him and resonates within our souls. What else should we expect if we are made in the image of God by him and for him?
We ought to expect then that there's something about God's truth that our hearts will yearn for, that will resonate with our deepest longings, and that will make most sense of our human experience and answer our human questions and satisfy our human searching. You know, uh, wishing something to be true doesn't make it true, of course. But maybe, just maybe, God made us in such a way that in some level when we hear the gospel, we'll say, I always wish that was true. C.S. Lewis put it this way, that it would be like remembering the most beautiful music that we've never heard. There's something in us, the image of God, that yearns for God's truth to be true. And that when we hear it, we see the beauty of it. And we see that it's what we've always sought and longed for. And that I, I believe that's the essence of Peter's response here. He has seen firsthand the unexplainable person of Jesus, unexplainable apart from the conclusion that he is the Holy One of God. And he's heard the words of Jesus, the words of Jesus that are life, that bring eternal life that bring with them all the offense and beauty and attraction that we would expect God's words to have in our hearts. And when we hear them, we hear God's voice speaking to us, his sheep. We find eternal life, life abundant. One writer sums up this response in this way. No one who has come to know Jesus' life-giving word would ever forsake him. When one once truly knows Jesus, none else can satisfy. As we prepare to uh, partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, let me ask us this question. Have you come to know and believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God? Have you found in Him hope, our only hope, life, the only source of life, and salvation. And have you heard in Jesus' words the words of God himself penetrating into our darkness to bring us into his marvelous light? If you haven't, let me uh, challenge and encourage you to consider who Jesus is and who he is to you. And if you have, let me remind us that God strengthens us by his grace and that he does not call us to live the Christian life or persevere in the faith by our own strength. In fact, he recognizes the weakness of our faith and makes provision for it. One of, that's, one of those means of provision is this sacrament, by which we believe in it, Christ is specially present with us to assure our hearts of his love and to strengthen our souls to live for him. It is in one way God's answer to that prayer that maybe at times we've all prayed that we read about in, in scripture, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And as you come to the table, let me encourage you to draw strength from Christ, strength for 
our weak and imperfect faith to grow in the certainty and truth of the words of Jesus.